You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Finance and history are inextricably linked. For every apparent surprise in modern-day financial markets, there's a chapter somewhere in the history books which offers lessons, cautionary tales, and importantly, solutions. Those pages are filled with booms and busts, credit expansions and contractions, bubbles, manias, and crashes. Those lessons, some of them worked. Others teach perhaps more through their failure, but all of them are invaluable in charting a course through today's monetary maze. Joining me today is a man whose knowledge of our financial past is only surpassed by his peerless ability in using it to frame our present and his eloquence in doing so. This week, on Adventures in Finance, Jim Grant. Today is September 28th, 2017, and welcome to episode 35 of Adventures in Finance. To my right, my trusty or rusty producer, James. How are you, mate? I'm trusty, I think. I think I'm, 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 I'm trusty today, not, not so much rusty. You say potato, I say potato. Um, now, this week, we have another special guest joining us, uh, and I am delighted that uh, this particular gentleman agreed to spend the time doing this with me. He's... Uh, He's been a financial hero of mine for quite some time now. He is one of the more eloquent market observers. He's written some tremendous books, um, my favourite among which is The Forgotten Depression, which uh, I read about two or three years ago, and it's still by my bed, ready for me to read again. Uh, Jim was a journalist at the Baltimore Sun and at Barron's, and has been, since 1983, writing Grant's Interest Rate Observer, which is one of the Bibles of the credit markets and, in fact, broader financial markets. So, uh, welcome, Jim. Hey, Grant. Thank you so much for joining me today. This, uh, this is something I've been looking forward to for a long time. I would not be anyplace else. <laughs> I, uh, I, I was once asked to describe you, and, I, and I, uh, I came up with the fact that you were the person I most wanted to be when I grew up. And I, and I stand by that, assuming, of course, at some point uh, I grow up. Grant, you're, you're 75 years old. <laughs> well, I wear it well, Jim. I wear it well. Now, um, yes, you do. I, I, so what I'm really looking forward to talking about is a couple of defining moments in your life, and it's, it's a rich and varied life, um, and I don't want to give it away just in case you, you choose some of the bits out there that people won't know about you. So I, I figure I'd just hand it over to you uh, and, and just leave the first one in your hands to surprise us which, uh, which particular fork in the road we're going to talk about. Ah, forks. Um, yeah, it, sounds like, it sounds like a cryptocurrency, the fork. Um, 
Uh, I guess I forked at the age of uh, 18. I had grown up uh, 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 very determined and and slightly talented, underscore slightly, we'll get back to that in a second, uh, player of the French horn. I was going to be a musician. Uh, My father was a Juilliard trade uh, timpanist and a performed with the Pittsburgh Symphony under Fritz Reiner. He was very, very good at what he did, and I had a mind to do that. And uh, uh, so I go away to, to uh, school, and, um, and six months later, I am a dropout and uh, uh, aboard the USS Hornet, which is an aircraft carrier. But from that uh, choice, that decision to uh, put aside music and do something the, the name of which I didn't even know. Um, uh, that was, I guess, the uh, that was the uh, a very formative uh, decision, and, a, and a, certainly a an anxious one for my parents at the time. They thought they were raising a scholar and, a, and an artist, and here I was, a gunner's mate. But, but what was it that that made you make that choice? Because obviously, coming from a musical family like that, it, those choices are always that much harder to make than than I guess the, the, the random legal career that went down the tubes for some reason. Yeah. Well, um, I realized uh, that I was slightly talented. And um, uh, there's a big difference between that and being uh, cut out for the very highest reaches of a, of a given uh, career or art. And I think also I was, you know, as I mentioned, 17 or 18 as I did this. I I, I actually enlisted in the Navy, um, in the Naval Reserve, about uh, two days after my 17th birthday. That's about as early as you could do it. Uh, and I wanted to to put down a marker to get away from home and to have an adventure. I grew up in the middle of uh, of suburban Long Island. I wanted something that I, I couldn't quite uh, put my finger on, but that something was not to be found in Nassau County in Williston Park, New York. So I was committed by that act of impetuosity at the age of 17 to uh, two years of active duty, and I, I wanted uh, to um, to be a proper uh, sailor as opposed to uh, a French horn player. So when you, when you when you came back and you, I guess you did a couple of years in in the service. Uh-huh. How how did you end up? Was it it was McDonnell and Co. I think you ended up at. Is that right? Yes, I I got out in 1967. That was 50 years ago, and um, I had. Uh, Resolved to go back to college, and it was time to stay there. But in the meantime, I had um, eight or nine months of uh, unscheduled time, and uh, so I got a job. I, I got a job at uh, a member firm of the New York Stock Exchange called McDonnell and Company. They were specialists in rights offerings, but they did a comprehensive business in equities and uh, a little bit in debt. And I got a job on the corporate bond desk. And um, my goodness, they were indulgent. I didn't pay much, but um, uh, whatever they did pay, it was too much, and I certainly owed them more than I ever paid them. Um, but uh, I learned the uh, a little bit about finance, and mostly learned how intriguing it was. And I, I couldn't help but observing that everyone, everyone else in the room was making at least a hundred thousand dollars a year, which in those days was very, very big money indeed. And I was making, Grant, I was making as much as one hundred dollars a week. Uh, but actually a little bit less than that, uh, which I say was uh, was extravagant considering my level of skills. But I, I, I got a vision of uh, of the world. I got a bigger vision in the next summer when uh, Wall Street suffered through a bear market and 
simultaneously a, a failure of, of administrative systems so comprehensive, so far-reaching, and so indicting to the firms that allowed this to happen that the trading was suspended, stock exchange trading was suspended Wednesday afternoon to allow backlog trades to be cleared. Can you imagine? This is all done on paper. And a big day's trading was 15 million shares. Uh, but the paperwork was so snarled uh, that uh, firms had to suspend all dealings while they administered to their own ineptness. And these were the firms that were advising corporate America on how to finance themselves. It was not, a, not Wall Street's finest moment, but that too was, uh, was instructive, as you can imagine. Yeah, but but it, it's interesting to me because most people, when they when they get a taste of finance, it's either it's either for them or it's just not something they they want to pursue. But you kind of took a different route because you, you saw all this stuff. What was it that that bear market and the and the the sort of storm and drang that you went through through that, that that took you off into the world of journalism, or or had you always intended to go back to finance at some point? I I think I. I um... I wanted to, I, I pretty early formulated the idea of, of some species of writing for a living. When I finally I got out of school, I, was, uh, I went to Indiana University and graduated in 1970. I went to Columbia University to study something called International Relations Grant, which is a, a field of study so esoteric that even now I have no idea what it was about. <laughs> but after all of that, I finally, much to the relief of uh, family and friends who were worried about me, I finally got a job. Imagine that, an actual civilian job. And that job was at the Baltimore Sun. And uh, I went there uh, in every, with every intention of becoming the next H.L. Mencken or some such you know, modern variant. And um, my first uh, year and a half or so had nothing at all to do with the business side of the news or financial side. I you know, covered uh, fires and, and uh, crime and uh, wrote obituaries, as every aspiring journalist is bound to do. And then, about a year and a half into this adventure, there was an opening in the financial desk. And because I had worked for McDonald and Company for eight or nine consecutive months, plus Grant, plus a couple of summers, and 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 studied economics, I was of course the uh, I was the Bernard M. Baruch of the newsroom. I was the, uh, the the financial savant. I was invited to do this, and I it, it appealed to me. This job did in the financial department of the Sun. It appealed to me because. It was the the least prestigious branch of reporting in the paper, by far. I mean, uh, consider that uh, this is 1973, and uh, the Nifty 50, I guess, was over or ending. Uh, there was a, a terrific inflation girdling up, but not yet so terrific as it would become. And uh, uh, Wall Street had peaked. Uh, virtually, I think in the late 60s, the indices had made some intermediate highs, but really the bull market had ended in the late 60s, and uh, we were about to begin a terrific bear market that would culminate in, I guess, 1975. So Wall Street was in bad odor, and writing about Wall Street was only slightly more respectable. Um, as long as nobody else wanted, I thought there might be something to it. So uh, armed as I was with uh, this expertise, um, I assumed my position on the Sun's financial desk. The first thing I asked uh, my long-suffering editor, Jesse Glasgow, I said, Jesse, would you just refresh me? Earnings and dividends are different, right? (laughs) 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 So 
So, okay, fine. I was an expert. I was a little rusty at that point, but I was to, my, 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 my expertise was, should we call it, latent rather than manifest. Yeah, yeah, no, clearly, clearly. And, but but you, you held on to the job. I obviously didn't uh, hear that question. Well, through. I did. You know, I, I, I did. And um, despite provocations, uh, I, uh, they, they retained me. And, and then I, I, by this time, uh, married uh, the former Patricia Cavanaugh, which is most important, formative fork in my road, but that's um, a little too personal to talk about on the air, Grant, you know, Eric. No, and I, stuff. I, com- it, I completely understand. But, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, this... this but, 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 but I, we got married, and, and now comes the time to um, think about, uh, you know, bigger things, because you have to, you know, like, have to make some money. So uh, uh, I thought I'd apply to Barron's, which I did in 1975, and, and, um, and they hired me. But this, but this was, I mean, in many ways, this was absolutely the perfect time to, to get into this little corner of the of the journalism world because as you said it was unloved it was unwanted nobody kind of wanted to read about it but there was so much uh i guess upheaval about to kind of hit that world. oh yes and and i and i had uh, very little idea of how profound were these convulsions when you, when you look back and you say oh 1974 75 those were the years in which uh, Bretton woods had ended so the dollar was a, no longer a certain weight of a precious metal, but rather was uh, in the hands of the technocrats at the Fed and of the marketplace itself. And um, you know, there was an idea from academe that was making the rounds. I remember being on the telephone with a guy from Johns Hopkins. I guess he was an economist. I had called up asking for someone's advice at the Hopkins University on the stock market, which was then plumbing lows. It must be 1974. And he said, you know... Um, there's really no such thing as a as a cheap stock because all the information that pertains to the valuation of equities is uh, disseminated in the world through the agency of the SEC and of the disclosures of the company. So this information is in the market because people are rational. They internalize the information. They process it. They they act on it. So prices are where they ought to be. So the market is lower than it was, but it's not to say that it's too low. This is when... They were giving away yes, stocks. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Buy one, get right. one free. This is, right. So, uh, you know, Jack Bogle was, um, who was, I think, a rather larger financial impression in the world, was thinking that maybe um, it would be a good thing to invest in a basket of big corporate equities and hold them for a long time and perhaps at the bottom of the market for a generation or so to come. That might not be a bad thing. That, too, was a good idea. Uh, but certainly, uh, in a much more modest scale, the idea of trying to understand what was happening and to uh, to think about it, its consequences, and to express the facts and opinions one might have in a clear and engaging voice—that was also um, worth doing. That's what I chose to do. Now, you, you, you are without question one of the more eloquent observers of financial markets today and and a lot of a lot of (laughs) you're welcome a lot of that eloquence uh revolves around central banks um uh, monetary soundness that 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 is uh that's indignation (laughs) well you you disguise it extremely well i have to say which gets you invited back but but did your your understanding of just how important august the 15th 1971 was did did you understand that at the time or was it just a piece of news it was just a piece of news. Um, I know I had uh, very little awareness at the time. Um, I remember that, that President Nixon, in making this announcement, had uh, preempted 
one of the great uh, horse operas, one of the great westerns uh, that came on at the same time. I think he spoke at 9 o'clock in the evening that Sunday. And that was the regular time for Bonanza. And this president comes on and talks about the dollar and about speculation and about gold. And, and I was wondering how the Cartwrights were doing on their ranch. <laughs> uh, but uh, I presently came to understand just what uh, a marker this was, in, not just in finance and monetary affairs, but also in the kind of the I don't know, kind of the, the social history of the country as well. But was it was it something that was it something that um, kind of just gradually pervaded thinking at the time, or did you actually have to go read history and, and develop an understanding of it? Because it, it always strikes me that um, the, the reason that the gold standard the, the gold standard was allowed to close the way it was was purely because the public were apathetic about it. If they'd complained the next day, and all hell would have let loose you get that sense that it would have been reinstated. I'm not sure what public opinion might have done. I think the the way that uh, the central bankers have, not so much Nixon, but the way that the the central bankers have presented the monetary issues to the public in, in their speeches, in their congressional testimony, they make it so recondite, so obscure, that people don't feel comfortable or qualified to argue. Uh, so uh, more and more of these monetary issues, which, which at one time were... were we're, we're right down the middle of the public fairway. I mean, the, um, I think the, one of the, the best-selling books of all time in America was something called Coins Financial School, which was a, a pro-silver tract. Uh, came out in the, uh, I think, in the 1890s. Um, the, the, you know, the monetary issues then were, were lively and were the subject of great public debate. But as the 20th century wore on and into the 21st century, the uh, more and more of the discussion is carried on by experts who, uh, uh, for whom English is a second language. They speak calculus and algebra, and, um, that's their first language, and, and uh, uh, which they are most comfortable in the appendices to their esoteric scholarly papers. But um, uh, uh, it's too bad that these issues are not uh, debated in English in the open. I think that uh, people would might indeed um, have uh, a different point of view on the fed and its works than they do now but that's you know that that always strikes me as as the job of journalists and, and it seems as though today um it's just made that much harder because the the way the industry is is built up it's built up to try and generate clicks or eyeballs or whatever it may be and and long-form debate or intelligent um argument about about things that that do require a modicum of either introspection or, or thought are just they just there's no space or time for them anymore i mean you as a journalist you must you must look at what passes for for journalism yes, today and I, I, I i have to be careful about uh, about uh, uh, criticizing that because uh, i think uh cheryl samer called some, she likened did the uh, uh number two in command of facebook to these paragraph length or sentence length, like a, like a she like an hors d'oeuvre, like a like an like an intellectual hors d'oeuvre, and that was the way they're going to do business. Well, I have to be careful about about uh, laying too much criticism on this because you know we are um, have made our mark and such mark as we have made. We certainly have tried to build a franchise around the idea. Uh, I hope not of overlong or of prolix treatments of these questions, but certainly we try to give them their due both in depth and in length. 
and we have very little competition. I can't say that the world is is actually demanding a whole lot more of this, but we're happy to do what we do, and uh, we're happy also to let the others do what they do. And the, and the more superficial, in a way, for us, the better. No, sure. I think not so much for the society. Well, yeah, look, you guys, you guys, it's it's a very hard thing to do to 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 make depth brief, uh, and you guys actually do do a fantastic job of that because it's not. It, it's not superficial, but you seem to get to the heart of the issue. But but you do so in a way that most people nowadays just don't. They can't. It just feels like they can't be bothered. It feels like they can't be bothered to read anything too long, and they can't well, be bothered yeah, to write people, anything. Too. People. I mean, everything is foreshortened. Uh, Fortune magazine. If you, if you want to go, kind of a look at the uh, at the odyssey of journalism. Go and look at. Uh, Fortune magazine in the 30s when it was yeah. uh, brainchild of Henry Lucid. It was this magnificently produced uh, piece of business and the stories went on for five or 6,000 words. And uh, and now I'm, I haven't seen Fortune in a while, but I think it uh, is uh, also in, uh, not quite bite-sized, but um, I'm not sure if it uh, would satisfy the, the founder through its depth yeah. or its thoroughness. Yes, I think I think there are there are many founders these days who were they alive would perhaps rue the day. Would they go have, back and not be alive. <laughs> yeah. Would they rue the day they ever bothered to die? Um, <laughs> well, look, let's let's uh, let's move on to uh, a second defining moment. And, and again, I'm, I'm fascinated to see which part of your your career you 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 head towards for this one. Well, I think leaving Barons and uh, see what what year was it? 1983. And uh, going off to found Grant's interest rate observer, that certainly was the uh, biggest professional decision I've made. I wish I could say that uh, I left Barron's because I had this vision. And the vision was that the world needed me. The world needed me um, uh, every two weeks, unfiltered by the um, well-intended but uh, somewhat uh, ham-handed uh, copy editors of Barron's who would uh, take out my best and funniest stuff and then... And I left because I, I knew this was the way forward. Well, that was not the reason I left. I left because of an utterly insignificant, except to us, political spat between the two honchos at Barron's, between Alan Abelson and Robert Blyberg. And you had a mentor uh, if you were on the staff, and the mentor was one or the other. And, uh, and Alan Abelson's uh, people uh, did better in this particular tiff, and I, I felt I had to leave. So uh, with great reluctance... I was so fond of Bob, and indeed came to be. Uh, we patched up with Alan, and I patched up too. But I, I, I was uh, so anyway. Anyway, we, we, I left and started this business not because um, the world had to have it, but because I had to do it. And right. I think it's, it's an unconventional uh, motivation for succeeding in business. I think I think it's a rather conventional motivation for quitting a, a job. But I, I think that's not the the best way to uh, to bring a product into the world. But anyway, that's where we began. Well, I think I think Steve Jobs was the guy who said that you know, the, his his uh, goal was to actually educate the public because they don't know what they want, and he's going to show them what they want. So maybe you were just Steve Jobs before his time. Well, that is a lovely image, Grant. And I'm going <laughs> to sh- cherish that. <laughs> don't ditch the bow tie for the black polo neck, though. Jack Bogle had this. I mean, he, nobody. He was. Uh, I'm not sure if he was exactly the first across the line with the the, the first through the. Uh, the gate with with the indexation idea. I, I think there's some contention. I, I, I'm going to say that Jack invented it because I, he's a good friend of mine. And I dare say that uh, I, I, he did. He, now that I think of it, 
Jack Bogle personally uniquely invented the index fund, but he, he invented it, Grant, without knowing that that's what the public wanted. He believed the right. public ought to have it. Yeah. Yeah, no, not exactly right. So, so you, you, because in terms of timing, uh, summer of 83, okay, you, you missed the absolute bottom, but, but what a great time to start a business, uh, doing what you're doing and then observing interest rates. Yes, it was. Uh, uh, it's it's hard now at this age of pygmy interest rates to uh, recreate the the market environment of the early '80s. So the, the the bond market had peaked in yield and bottomed in price in September of 1981, and uh, intraday at least the uh, 30-year Treasury, 25 years non-call. Uh, Changed hands at a yield of maturity of fifteen percent, one five percent, not one point five. Grant fifteen. Yeah, well, there are people out there now who who've rewound that twice, but yes, absolutely right, fifteen. Yes, um, and um, and mind you, this was uh, not quite, but almost two years after Paul Volcker had come in and uh, instituted the October 6, nineteen seventy nine program, whereby he pledged and did indeed proceed to strangle inflation by constricting the growth of bank reserves, let interest rates do what they might, and what they did was go up in his face. I mean, think of it. Paul Volcker, now we know to be this uh, this lion, comes in and announces what he's going to do, and the bond market says, yeah. right. Yeah, we'll see. So uh, the, the weekend, I remember this very well, the weekend that uh, he made this announcement, the uh, long-dated IBM 30-year bond was at 9%, IBM then being a, being a AAA credit, so it was essentially a 9% treasury yield. And uh, so it went up, let's see, 6 percentage points divided by 9 percentage points means like a lot, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like two-thirds, two-thirds yeah. again in the face of this, the, what we now can see is not only in, in rhetoric but also in action. We can see the certitude of the end of the inflation cycle and the end of that rate cycle. Interest rates had been going up since 1946. There was 35 years until 1981. And any clairvoyant grant could have seen that they were now headed down. Yes, well, well, but here we are now, symmetrically, 35 years after they started going down. And for a man who's built a, a, a storied career on observing interest rates, I mean, at this rate, you're not going to have many to observe for too much longer. I know. Well, I, I, I was thinking about... Uh, Getting a new business model. I, uh, nobody's getting any younger. I, I couldn't. I can. My eyes were not are not what they were. They're never very good. But I, I can scarcely see them on the page. Um, the interest but, rate uh, recaller, perhaps, might be. Uh, yes. Yeah. Be but you know, um, bef- before leaving the early '80s, uh, this is a. I think this is a wonderfully illustrative tale of markets. So the bond market uh, bottoms in. Price peaks and yield in September of 81. So let's fast forward to May of 1984. So yields had been uh, working their way higher uh, despite the obvious, in retrospect, peaking of commodities, uh, the obvious peaking of, of hourly compensation rates in the labor market. I mean, the air traffic controllers union uh, had come under the presidential thumb and was been crushed and this is I guess 1981 maybe so all signs again in retrospect were pointing towards lower interest rates lower inflation but still it, disobediently these rates kept going up they went to 12% 13% and then 
intraday in, uh, in the spring of 1984, I think it was May, I, th- I think the 30-year did, in fact, reach 14%. 14% when the CPI was printing at less than 5. So it was 9 percentage points plus of real yield available. And, and in those days, the, the, uh, there were zero-coupon securities that the uh, brokers like Merrill Lynch had created, Solomon Brothers, so you could buy a, a 30-year, they call it a cat, not in, as in catastrophe bond, but there was a, there were tigers and cats, all these feline names for these bonds, but no reinvestment risk, no call risk. This 30 years of internal compounding at between 13 and 14 percent. And do you know, not every person in America wanted one. Yes, I, I, I know from my reading of history. I mean, I, and this astounds me. But when when you talk about this environment and you you look back on it and you realize just how crazy it was and you kind of see the signs. I'd love to think there was a reciprocal function at the other end of the scale, but but I guess the the beauty of where you were back in the early eighties was you could see value, and it's always much harder to to call to call something when there's no value. So so what what do you think? Very very you, well said, very well said. But but what do you what do you see when you look now? What, what goes through your mind? Well, I well what I what I see first of all in the pages of the grants is a great many erroneous anticipations <laughs> of the end of this particular cycle I mean I'm um, I wish I had made a study of the cycles of rates in the early 80s I knew something about it but I had not properly internalized the work of Sidney Homer to know that these rate cycles are generation length and uh, what was probably ahead of us was not just a trade but one of the great investments Van Horton very terrific bond investor yeah. in, in Texas certainly was onto this, not at that instant, uh, but early enough to make a great career. I saw that, that when rates in the early part of this uh, now still young century got uh, 3% and 2%, I, I guess, you know, I, I thought, well, maybe this is the end. It wasn't the end. So let's look back to. Um, how it looked in, in 1946. This, this is so what we want to think of now, what we're trying to think of now, is, is, to, is to anticipate uh, the closing of this great cycle of a bond bull market. It began in 1981. It, uh, maybe it ended last summer. Uh, the 10-year was a one-handle, and there was positive frenzy to own bonds. So I'm kind of thinking that was it, although my credibility in this score has been, shall we say, tarnished. In 1946, that was another low in, in rates, and that was a time also of so-called financial repression. The government was trying to uh, finance a world war, and the Fed suppressed rates across the yield curve. And comes 1946, the war ends, and maybe there's some thinking that maybe the Fed's going to be allowed to run a market-based policy, but not yet. So let's see, 1940, spring of 1946, the long bond does bottom as perspective would later inform, see in retrospect, and, and it bought in about two and a quarter. And the event that crystallized the bottoming in yield, the peaking in price, was a transaction by a major corporate issuer, the Union Shell Oil Company, which came to market with uh, uh, 25-year debentures, and um, the yield was, I don't know, two and seven, eight, something, two and a half. And and the telling thing was that the underwriters and the regulators were all hung up 
on the uh, on the covenant language having to do with uh, the potential insolvency of this virtually AAA-rated company. And what is telling about that is that the people who were paid to worry worried about the wrong thing. They were worried about the thing that had been the source of so much loss, right. namely credit. Right. So the 1930s had, of course, been uh, uh, been very rich in bankruptcies and restructurings and defaults, and uh, the language of covenants and a fine print in bond indentures was tested uh, to a fair the will. And by the time 1946 rolled around, people knew what constituted adequate fine print and what didn't. Um, so that's the, so so then what should have been concerned about because Harry Truman had just signed the Employment Act of 1946 because. Uh, the demographics pointed to a period of unbounded post-war prosperity because America was the only industrialized country left, except for Australia, you know, virtually uh, standing and and productive. Anyone, uh, any clairvoyant, Grant should have seen this was the beginning of something, not having to do with falling interest rates. Uh, but uh, you know, we we humans uh, are move to a degree on muscle memory and, and, uh, and conditioned behavior and expectations, conditioned by experience, and, and what people were doing was looking backward. Uh, you almost can't help it. You know, if you, yeah. the, 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 experience, the experience of this cycle has been so important. I mean, the, the crisis of 2007, 8, and 9, and the Fed's intervention, the, you know, the ECB pressing down rates to next to nothing, and then, and then, Less than nothing, the first such instance in 5,000 years of a substantially negative nominal bond yields. So the, imagine the, the muscle memory that is now being uh, implanted, as it were, in the world's creditor class. It is, uh, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a very important uh, 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 people you know, have come to trust these central banks. They've come, if not to trust them, they come to respect their power. And in um, their might, if not their if not their discernment. But that's you know that's I I, I find it interesting because um, I think it was Churchill said the further back in time we look, the further forward we can see. And when you when you when you talk about these two periods, that the idea that you have to go back to 1946 to to find anything even remotely comparable to what we're seeing now, is probably just a little bit too far back in time for people to look. But but when you when you look at what we're seeing now in its own right, forget history, just step away from it far enough so you can see it for what it is. It's hard for rational people to make the argument, to, to go back to your point, that negative interest rates should even be a thing. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's what a concept. Well, it, well it, it flies in the face of everything we know about the theory of interest rates and everything we know about human behavior. Humans want something when they want it they want it now right that's what amazon yeah. prime is all about yes, impetuosity yes, exactly. is is how the human is, how we humans are wired and interest rates uh, there are many theories of of what rates are and why they should be uh, but one uh, theory that deserves at least a modicum of, of respect is that uh, interest rates are the rate of pay for waiting and that you the capitalist uh, are willing to uh, to hand over your your money to someone who needs it now, who is not prepared to wait, either through necessity or temperament or opportunity, whatever. They want the money now. So, okay, you have it now, but you'll pay me something for that, for having it now. So the time preference is integral to the idea 
of the very idea of interest rates. So now we have in, in, in the continent of Europe, we have, I've forgotten how many trillions of, of dollars worth of sovereign debt is priced at less than zero. It used to be as, as high as 12 trillion. I think mm-hmm. it was summer of 2016. I think, dare say it's much less now, although still considerable. Uh, but, but, you know, sovereign governments, you pay them. Yeah. There's a, a wonder, wonderful uh, aphorism that came out of the French Revolution. I've forgotten who the perceptive nobleman was when said that um, you would rather have a mortgage on a garden than on a kingdom. Right. Kingdoms, right. kingdoms being inherently unreliable and uh, politicized and, uh, and gardens at least having a claim to a productive value. But the idea of, of paying Croatia, I mean, or I forget with the least. No, I wasn't. Well, there's a hundred year Austrian bond. I, yeah, I think right. They got right. away recently. Um, and, and of course, Argentina, which, uh, which was, yes. which is one for the ages. Right. And uh, I think there are opportunities for five or so defaults in the Argentina century bonds based upon yeah. the track record of that yes, country. Exactly. I was thinking about, anyway, so um, I think the world uh, is. Uh, enthrall to central banks and to the notion that there ain't no inflation and won't be any, and that uh, you can lend your money without fear of, of law, even though, even though, Grant, the central bank's saying, we strive to take 2% a year from, from you. you. Exactly right. Two, two, yeah, if yeah. we're successful, and you, you are backing <laughs> us with all your faith, if, we, if we're successful, here's what we're going to do for you. It's, it's, I mean, it, it makes less and less sense and, the and, more you think about it. And did you hear, did you hear, um, our friend Jeffrey Gunlack pointed this out uh, uh, just a, I think last week, that the Bank of America Merrill Lynch euro-denominated junk bond index traded through the U.S. Treasury index. Yes. <laughs> but but this, is, this is what I find so bewildering, is on their own, any one of these points that we keep, having thrown up at us by markets, make no sense. And if you took them in isolation, you'd say, well, that can't be. Well, what possible not world... Only, not only can it be, but it didn't happen. Yeah, exactly right. It's just the whole thing is, is bizarre. I mean, you, you famously, I think, coined the phrase return-free risk a few years ago. Oh, no, no, that was... was that uh, I, I, I infamously stole it. Well, that's just as good, I, I borrowed it. Okay, um, fair enough. Uh, yes, I, uh, Paul, Paul Isaac. Ah, Paul Isaac. Okay, well... Uh, I will apologize to Paul next time I see him. But, but, you know, One of the great aphorists of yeah, uh, but it, finance. But ever since I first heard that phrase bandied around and kind of chuckled at, at how incisive it was, risk has essentially disappeared. It's slowly but right. surely. They, yeah, they got Paul, the coupons Paul, down. Paul did not coin that aphorism like last year. No, no, exactly. Like many years ago, yeah. Uh, but, but now there's no risk. They're, they took the rates away first and now they're taking the risk away. But here is uh, let's let's give the bond bulls their due, or at least some of their due. And they they say Lacey Hunt, uh, who worked with Van Hoisington, has run this this magnificent uh, enterprise of buying long bonds, and then and then grants the key part, not selling them based upon something you read in Grant's interest rates. Right. Um, they contend, uh, especially Lacey contends, Lacey Hunt contends that uh, that this is a deflationary world, and that uh, more debt ought not to be the reason to sell debt. You think that it might be because too much of anything is likely to overburden the market, but rather too much debt weighs on the level of prices, weighs on productivity, on the creation of wealth, and for that reason is deflationary. So the the more the Treasury borrows, 
okay, so I, yeah, yeah, okay, I, I, I understand that, and I can see the, the appeal of the argument. But what we have now is not a deflationary environment, at least so far as the other departments of finance are concerned. We have depression level interest rates and and boom time equity values. Yeah, exactly. And real estate cap rates. Now, how does that work? Well, I, I mean, I, I asked the same question, but I, I guess it, it, the only answer I can come up with, and perhaps you can give me a, a more insightful one, but it, you know, it, it works until it doesn't. That's all I can figure out because it can't work forever because it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I, uh, I can't do any better than that. So, um... <laughs> All right. Well, look, let's, uh, let's move on to the mailbag because I've got a ton of questions here for you and we're not going to have time to answer them all. But so I'm you know, I, only have a, I only have a quarter ton of answers. Well, okay, well, I'll, I'll just ask you one in every four questions and we should get through this just fine, okay. you and I. Yeah, the first, the right question. The first one I have to ask you because I, I've seen so many people on Twitter suggest this, uh, that it would, it would be a service to the world to get your answer to it, and that is uh, a, a, a question from a gentleman called Stefan. And he says, if Jim Grant were offered to become Fed Chair Yellen's successor, would he accept? No. <laughs> so, okay, so you are as smart as I thought you were. But, uh, but on the basis that you wouldn't accept, what would be your reasoning behind that, apart from who'd want the job? Well, I don't want to, I don't want to take the fall. This is, this, is not the, this is not a very patriotic response. To, first of all, Stefan, thank you for asking such a flattering question. Secondly, I, um, uh, thank you again. Secondly, thirdly, my reluctance is that I, that, um, I think that there, that there is room in the world for a better monetary system than the one we have. And I, and I think that, that um, we will get that, but not before we have um, a major comeuppance having to do with the consequences of the system in place. And I, and I say this, I, I, I don't, uh, I say this not in any apocalyptic vein. I don't believe that the world ever ends, nor nor even from a point of view of prescription, should it. I, I'm in favor of the world continuing, sun coming up, and I believe that it always has and it always will. But I think that, um, well, I think this. I think that, that prices convey information and that um, that interest rates are prices and that manipulated interest rates being prices convey misinformation. And I think the consequences of seven, eight, or nine years, depending how you count, of manipulated and suppressed interest rates will be a great shakeout uh, in finance because of decisions errantly taken on the basis of phony interest rates. You know, Mario Draghi is fond of saying there's no bond bubble. Well, of course there's a bond bubble. I mean, European junk bonds would not trade through treasuries in the absence of some unnatural force. And that unnatural force of the European Central Bank buying 60 billion euros worth of debt securities every single month. And, and these distortions are arbitraged through all the markets of the world. And you know, capitalism is resilient and, uh, and responsive. And these problems will, in fact, be sorted out. But I don't, why do I have to be the Fed chairman while we're sorting? Why can't I come in? After the smoke is blown away a little bit, and then helping the uh, in the uh, recreation of things, I don't want to. Well, that's fair enough. That's fair. But it, but if let, let's just postulate that you can be an anonymous Fed chair, nobody knows it's actually you pulling the strings. 
Um, I can, and, I can, I can say I'm Grant Williams. I'm yeah, here yeah, to be right. your teacher. I, I will take it on the chin if I need okay. to. But, but apart from, I'm going to take away the ability to write a letter of resignation. What would be your first okay. move? Were you the Fed chair? I think the uh, uh, the first thing to do is, as President Gerald Ford said after Nixon left the White House, was a, a little plain talk among friends. And I think I would give a speech saying that uh, we have been living in a hall of mirrors that constructed by uh, this institution, being the Fed, and by others like-minded, and that we are going to have to live in a world of reality. Now, that sounds harsh, reality being at times harsh and many times uh, um, just right and utterly natural. But we're going to have to prepare for the uh, decompression from this period of, of falsely uh, of, of false information conveyed through through the prices we call interest rates. I'm going to say that we, we ought to normalize. We must normalize. Uh, the Fed's got no business owning one quarter of the first mortgages in this country, nor has it any business owning not quite one fifth of all the treasury securities. And that what we're going to do is to get back to a basis of market determined interest rates and of a dollar that is not an instrument of national policy, but a measure of value. And as far as the second part of this project, that is the restoration of a dollar that is a measure of value, we are going to re-examine the basis of the dollar and to propose uh, the restoration of some variant on the gold standard. And this variant might have to do with the marriage of digital technology and uh, the gold basis of value. I'm, I'm not. I uh, haven't got all the answers, but we have in this country many people. Uh, the world has many people who can think about this in a creative way. We're going to do something about the dollar that will uh, stabilize its value in harmony with the stabilized currencies of other nations. And there's a, a third part of the program that you, Grant, will implement. And this is we're going to return financial responsibility for financial institutions to the owners of those institutions. We are going to get out of the business of subsidizing the owners of leveraged financial institutions. Now, in the day, there was something called accessible bank stock. And when an institution became impaired or insolvent, the stockholders, not the public, the stockholders got a capital call. And whether or not accessible bank stock is now uh, feasible, um, we will determine. We will determine something that will reinstitute the spirit of accessible bank stock such that the owners of these properties will be allowed to manage them in the interest of a profit, but will also bear responsibility for error. So we're going to naturalize and normalize interest rates. We are going to investigate and implement a reform of currency, and we are going to return financial institutions to the realm of capitalism rather than state control. That's the program. Well, I, I hear nothing there that I wouldn't be delighted to have my name against, Jim. So you have, you have my okay. full permission to use me as your, as your and full I will, guy. I will, I will be holding your coat as you do this. Okay, uh, right. the, mean the, the flames of the, uh, the Bernanke yelling regime. Yeah, but... I, I, maybe don't hold my coat, but just have the car running outside. That might be more, <laughs> might be more useful. All right, the, the second question uh, is from Rudy. Now, uh, the question runs like this. This is the first time I'm aware where every nation in the world is using a currency which can be created without apparent limit, uh, backed by not much more than PhDs. In addition, many of these central banks are using a neat magic trick to monetize bonds and buy real assets, for example, Apple shares and the Swiss National Bank. 
What is the end game here? Will central banks end up eventually owning all financial assets as price is irrelevant? Will a weird form of communism triumph in the end? And he, and he adds a winking emoji, so <laughs> hopefully he's not serious about that last part. Well, I, th- I think the, the end game is a clarifying bear market that will, I hope, will focus public opinion on the fundamental source of what will then be seen as our, as our difficulties. I say we need a clarifying um, and uh, consciousness-raising bear market. I don't say this lightly. I know what uh, these things are like, and I have been on the wrong side of bear markets in my favorite asset classes. I know exactly, I think I know exactly what it does to people. And, and uh, But I, you know, I, I think that in the case of the prospective bear market, uh, through the, it'll be the, seen as the consequence of, of these central bank policies, I think that the big future event is to see what the central banks do about the problems that they themselves will have uh, been instrumental in creating. So, you know, um, the the Fed has been in the process, uh, at least discussing normalization of policy since 2011, and has been very specific about what it intends to do since 2014. In the spring of of 2014, it it, uh, issued a uh, uh, kind of a directive about what it will do is going to shrink the balance sheet and it's going to rates back up. And the addendum to this program was a kind of a one or at most two sentence out clause saying that if things didn't go well, the Fed would uh, probably have to revert yeah. to uh, some form. Okay, so that was then. So this this past spring, I think it was in May, the Fed comes out with still more granular guidance about what is to come. And this time the out clause runs to a big fat paragraph and it's full of, uh, you know, if it doesn't work, we're going to come, come back and force. And I thought it was, uh, this was the tip off to the Fed's own insecurity and to its commitment to the continuation of these policies that I think have been on balance, very, very troubling. So what happens, what happens if, uh, you know, the market pulls, so the Fed is now going to you know, normalize its balance sheet. So it says, so what happens if the market pulls back, uh, you know, the unimaginable, the unimaginable degree of 20%? You know, the Fed raised its rate once at uh, the end of 2015, I think, of 2016. Dawn's cold and clear and worrying because the stock market pulled back, not 20%, but, uh, you know, what was it, 12, 15, something like that. And uh, Janet Yellen, who had just raised the funds rate in December of 2015, now starts talking about the possible uses of negative nominal yields. So the, the central bank is poised to uh, to resume these radical nostrums. And so I, I, I think that the, as I styled it to you, Grant, the, this the looming comeuppance yes. Is going to be especially fraught because the central banks will be poised to do more of what they did to cause it. These are these are the firefighters coming to investigate uh, the arson that they themselves have, have uh, responsible for. So uh, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting, and um, I don't know. We'll know more in five years. Yeah, well, we'll see. Maybe, maybe seven, eight, who knows? I mean, I, I'm, I'm amazed we've got this far. Yeah. Right, I'm going to try and sneak in one more question if I can. Um, when, in your reading of history, do you think the devaluation of the dollar began? Was it 1913, 1933, 1971, or another time in history? And that's from Howard. Um, I think 1914, that was the first 
year of, of, of operations of the Fed. And uh, no sooner did the Fed begin the first world war breaks out in Europe and the Fed begins to uh, plan, you know, uh, uh, systems and uh, protocols that would lead to the uh, marginalization of gold reserves at banks and uh, would lead finally to the, uh, the fiat regime. So I think, it, I think the retreat from the gold standard vision of some or most of the founders of the Fed began almost instantly with the institution of the organization. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, well, look, the last thing I need to do um, is send you up to Mars. Uh, and oh, yes. Get you, it'll be nice and peaceful up there. I, I believe uh, there's it's, well, it's a one-way ticket for now. We'll see. You know, we'll see what happens up there. If you if you if you start a central bank up there, then we may leave you up there. Um, okay. But uh, I'm going to allow you to take with you a book, a CD, a DVD, a piece of technology, and a famous quote, which I am going to get needle pointed lovingly for you to hang up in your little okay. pod up there. So uh, let's let's kick off with the book. You're you're a man who's probably written more books than I've read, but let's uh, let's start off with the book you take with you. Well, I'm going to take. Um the Life of Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. Now, uh, Dr. Johnson was, uh, to my mind, the consummate Englishman. And I don't know if, uh, uh, that uh, you, Grant, as an Australian, have a small <laughs> tolerance for this, this tribe. But uh, you'd, lo- you'd love Dr. Johnson. He's a man of letters and a commission, and a, I think he's kind of bearish. And um, uh, this book is unusual in that, first of all, from beginning to end, it is... Uh, uh, just pure delight, in my opinion. Um, it tells a story of, of what life was like in, in the second half of the 18th century, and uh, and uh, it was unusual also in that it was it's the first modern biography, and I submit it's the best. So there aren't that many examples of the first of a genre of book being the best, and this is after. I guess more than 200 years, I think, has stood up as the best. So that's, that's my book. It's right. nice and fat, too. Well, Mr. Boswell will thank you. I'm going to keep an eye on the Amazon sales of this book because I dare say they're going to go through the relative roof now and people are going to be wondering what the hell has happened. Um, okay, now, music. Um, this one I always find fascinating to see which piece of music people will take. Which uh, piece of music are you going to opt for? Uh, the, well, to Mars, right? To Mars, yes, indeed. Okay, okay. The, the, obviously, then, Grant, we're taking the planet. The planet, yeah. <laughs> uh, a seven movement suite by Gustav Holst. And, um, you know, I um, think he started writing these things individually in 1913 or something. And, and he, got, uh, he got all the way. To, Pluto was discovered uh, four years before his death, and they asked him to write one for Pluto, and he declined. And uh, after he died, somebody uh, wrote one for Pluto. I think he never got around to writing one for Goofy, though, so that remains to be written. <laughs> But I'm taking the planets. All right, the planets, that, that so be it. Um, uh, what about a movie? You're going to give you a DVD and, and a means with which to play it. What, uh, what film are you going to take up with you? I'm going to take The Natural, which is a, oh, a baseball movie. It's uh, yeah, by Bernard, the based on the book by Bernard Malibud. And um, God, I, I, I'm going to miss baseball a lot in Mars. Yeah, thanks, Elon. Yeah, yeah for, right. For nothing. Um, but I, I can I can watch this thing over and over again and have I, the trouble you know the trouble with this space first of all it's going to be on one of Elon's rockets and you know it's, it's be, this rocket's going to be long on a press release and I'm not so sure if it's going to get there or how long it's going to take 
well, can have but, a great big PE multiple attached to it. But so you, what you want is something you can watch over and over again, right? Yeah. So in case everything, nothing, nothing goes perfectly right, you know? So yep. anyway, The Natural. The Natural is, uh, that's one of my favorite movies. I, I, I love that film. I, I saw that as a, as a kid and the whole idea of Wonder Boy, just, it, just, it just filled me yeah. with joy. Yeah. Um, okay, a piece of technology. How about that? A pen. A pen. I love it. I love it. This is my kind of technology. That's, you know, I'm not even going to ask you to elaborate on that because I think that's the best answer we've had so far. I love that that's technology. And, uh, and last of all, the needle-pointed quote. Now, I know, I, ah, here it is. I have I, high I hopes you'd never for this ask. One. I thought you'd never ask. This is a financially themed one. And uh, the author of this quotation is a guy named Joe Robillard, a very successful investor. Anyway, here it is. Quote, successful investing is about having everyone agree with you later. <laughs> All right, I will, I will get my needle-pointing team hard at work on that uh, <laughs> immediately. That's, that's a great quote, Joe Robillard. I, I have not heard that quote before, which surprises me because I, I have probably needed that whispered in my ear several times. You are, you are an archivist of these quotes, I'm surprised too, but there it is. Fantastic. Jim, that's all we have time for, I'm afraid. I have enjoyed every second of this, even more than I expected I would, which is almost impossible to comprehend. Well, but Grant, thank you, you, so much. Are, you are the very best at what you do, and thank you for doing it with me. Jim, uh, until we next meet, hopefully I can, uh, I can buy you a drink and uh, maybe a spot of dinner. I'd love that. Thank you, Grant. Thanks, Jim. Bye-bye. Bye. Sadly, that concludes this episode of Adventures in Finance. Before we go, the usual legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and, of course, the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and please do trade responsibly. Next week, we're back with a real treat for you. We're going to turn the microphone around, and joining me is Preston Pish, uh, one of the co-hosts of the Investors Podcast. Now, Preston's background is... Uh, really different to most people you're going to hear in the financial industry and this is a conversation you are not going to want to miss in the meantime if you've got an interesting question about this week's show then we would love to hear it so please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com and if you enjoyed what you heard then please subscribe on itunes review don't review i really don't know if it makes a difference to keep up to date with the latest interviews research publications and of course podcast episodes then do follow us on twitter at realvision and you will also find us should you visit the hallowed halls of both Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at AIF James. You can follow James at AIF James. How about that? Hey, people like my short story. People like your short story. Well, that's it from us. We will see you all next week. Thanks for listening. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com